Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Jim Gray. Jim is the former chief of the Osage Nation, and we invited him to talk about Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. So Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thanks. So um, people who have seen the movie, there's going to be a a lot of spoilers, but it's basically about a series of horrifying murders committed by white people against the Osage nation who were fortunate or, you know, I guess fortunate or unfortunate enough, depending on your your view, to to be... (laughs) (laughs) to, To find oil in the 1920s. But before... We, we talk even about the film. We were um, hoping, Jim, you would maybe uh, be able to give us a bit of the, the prehistory of the Osage. The film starts in 1918, mm-hmm. really takes place in the majority of the early 1920s. But how did the Osage wind up in um, Oklahoma? And how did what, what is the longer term history? Sure. Prior to European contact, the Osages had a territory that existed primarily in the Ohio Valley. Uh, where the Ohio Valley, uh, Ohio River, and the Mississippi and Missouri River all kind of connect in that area, what we now call as uh, uh, Missouri, Arkansas, Illinois, going up to Indiana and Ohio. And over the several hundred years, our migration stories depicted us all along those areas. Archaeological findings are also related to Osage, uh, you know, artifacts and things of that nature. And it it's consistent with our oral stories. After European contact, the Osages were centered in the area near St. Louis, Missouri, in Arkansas. We were part of a larger group of tribes that broke off into five different tribes, and uh, they all went different directions. The Quapaw, Kaw, Ponca, Omaha, and uh, Osage. And uh, and the Osages stayed primarily in that location, while the other tribes went different directions. And so... Um, but we all have the same language and same linguistic background. After European contact, we traded with the French primarily. We had a very good relationship with them up until the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, when that happened, the United States uh, entered into several treaties with the tribes. This is well into westward expansion. And between the years of 1808 to 1872, the Osages uh, ceded millions, millions of acres of our land in Missouri and Arkansas settled into a small strip of land in um, Kansas that uh, was our reservation then. And as Kansas was getting inundated with settlers looking for rich agricultural land, which the Osages had, the Indian agent really couldn't defend all the settlers who were squatting on our land and setting fire to our villages and all kinds of horrible things were happening, and um, we eventually negotiated with the United States to sell our lands in Kansas and use the proceeds of that sale to buy land in Indian Territory, which is now known as Oklahoma. And that piece of property that we bought from the Cherokees um, became um, title. We owned it. You know, It wasn't like we were moved at bayonet point like so many other tribes were during the Indian removal of the tribes on the East Coast that were all moved to Indian Territory in Oklahoma at that time. Ours was, we were one of the last tribes to move into that area, and uh, but we did a little different real estate transaction, basically. We sold our land, used the money from that sale, and bought this land. So we had title to it, you know. And that in that action, we lost probably 90% of our population through starvation, disease, exposure, all the removals constituted the loss of our way of life in Missouri that did not exist on the plains. Plants didn't grow. Medicine didn't grow in these new areas we were in. And uh, a lot of our people died during that period of time. And we lost a lot of our ability to sustain 
our traditional cultural ways that had served us for thousands of years. And uh, and our population was went from like 20,000 in two, eight, 1808 to about 1,000 by the time we arrived. So that's about a 90% drop in your population in just 70 years. And uh, from that time, we started to rebuild. We started to adapt. We started learning to try to hang on to what we could while adapting to a new Western civilization that was storming into our communities. And uh, we built our uh, relationship up in such a way where we had a constitution. We had a, you know, a tripart government. We had law enforcement. We had courts. We started to, uh, you know, modernize our tribe in the traditional ways of our past using the elements of our old traditional ways of governing ourselves into this new written government that we had in the Constitution, which served us really well during those period of time. We became really good at uh, ranching. We leased a lot of our land. All the big cattle ranches loved to fatten their calves on our blue stem grass before they took them to Kansas City to the uh, stockyards. And uh, we made, we were wealthy even before oil, actually. And uh, Almost so much so that it became a little bit of a concern because at the same time, the United States was pushing Indian Territory to become a state. And one of the ways they did that was by this act, they, the Dawes Act, which is which is what we call the Allotment Act. This Allotment Act was breaking up all the tribal land holdings collectively and handing out 160-acre tracts of land to every man, woman, and child in the tribe. This was going on not just in Indian Territory at the time with all the tribes there, but it was going on all over the United States. And so a lot of tribes didn't have a a concept of individual land ownership because it was all community-based. And uh, so there was some difficulty hanging on to that land, given the fact that they had not only did that, but they also abolished our tribal constitution in 1901. And we didn't have a government for a few years leading up to statehood in 1907. And when they did pass the Osage Allotment Act, we had some, what you call some leverage, I guess. And one was that we had bought title to the land, and so they couldn't exactly just break it up easily uh, without our consent. But we knew the pressures were so intense at that time to accept allotment, and eventually we did with a few caveats that we were able to negotiate, and one was the collective holding of all the subsurface of the Osage Nation, which was mean and a half acre. So, Jim, just a quick question. At this point, this is the early 19th century, sorry, 20th century. Uh-huh. Um, there was no knowledge of oil yet. Well, oil was discovered in the 1890s. Got it. But the boom didn't hit until the teens. And Got then it. it just exploded when they started finding huge oil fields. And at one point, um, it was the largest oil field in North America. So, so there was, there was a, it was a smart move to get the subsoil rights. It was. Yeah. And um, because of that, every Osage man, woman, and child was issued a share in the, the, the royalties that came from the development. And that is what made the Osages went from just being wealthy to incredibly wealthy in a very short period of time. And that was the, also the beginning of the Osage Reign of Terror, which is depicted in the film. Jim, it, early on in the film, you, we, I mean, we, we sort of start with, after the discovery of oil, the Osage are, are obviously very wealthy. You see them, you know, in fancy clothes, hiring drivers and, uh, you know, all sorts of things that indicate wealth. But there's also this structure that seems to be in place uh, in terms of the finances where, Osage need to go into to a bank or, or some some office and sort of make a case for having access to their own money. Can you talk about that? What, what, what was that? How did it come to be and, and how did it function? It was something that they it was very racist uh, policy at the time. It was called the guardianship policy. And it was a, it was created in the the federal government, and it was imposed not just on the Osages, but all tribes that had allotments. And uh, part of the, the, I guess, the I don't know if it was naive or it was 
deliberate that appointing guardians over Indian estates like ours uh, basically put the fox in charge of the hen house. And uh, these individuals exploited the Indians, overcharged them for goods and services at the stores. Uh, there was a kickback scheme that was produced during the 1920s that showed uh, just in the Osages case, over $8 million was siphoned off Osage Estates in 1920s dollars. So we're talking about uh, maybe 50 to $60 million in today's money. Uh, so this, this was staggering, the kind of money that the Osages were making, but was equally staggering was the level of corruption that descended in the Osage Nation to separate the Osages from their money. And this guardianship was a legal way to do it. And uh, the, the the Indian agent and the Bureau of Indian Affairs were just a pass-through for the, the funds to go to the uh, these uh, estates and these individual Indians who were deceit, deemed by federal law, simply by the, the amount of Indian blood in their body, was deemed immediately incompetent. And as a result of that, was uh, appointed a white guardian to oversee their finances in every aspect of their life for the rest of their life. And, and this is basically where the movie begins. And this brings us into the 1920s. So for people who might not be familiar, there was a series of murders. Um, numbers differ, but I think the official numbers are, are quite low, but the unofficial numbers are, are quite high in, in the hundreds yeah. If I am, if I am correct, um, and so obviously um, the the book was was really centered on, from what I understand, the rise of the FBI, and the movie is very much not. So, Jim, did you have any um, relationship with the movie, or did you know that it was coming out? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how Scorsese was able to depict the, these these brutal crimes because it's a very interesting situation. Because Scorsese, obviously of Italian descent depicting um, a Native American tragedy from the perspective, primarily, if not totally, of, of a white American. So I, I was wondering, what what was your involvement with the film, if at all, and, and what are your thoughts on how Scorsese was able to portray it? Well, at the time, we didn't know Scorsese was going to direct the film uh, when the book came out, but there was a bidding war for movie rights uh, that was going on prior to the book even coming out by I think about four months before the book was even published, I mean, out in the public, there was a bidding war for the movie rights because David Grant, who wrote the book, had a um, a success with a previous book that was made into a Hollywood film called The Last City of Z, uh, Lost City of Z. So he was kind of like the hot author to already by the time this book came out. So there was this huge bidding war from people like George Clooney and all these big outfits were all bidding on it. And a company that, that was relatively new ended up getting the rights to the film. And it was called imperative imperative bought the rights in 2017, I think. And, um, and the success of the book was enormously, it was like the book of the year club winner. And it was number one book in 2017 on Amazon and, Mr. David Grand traveled all over the United States, did book signing tours, and basically told the story of what happened to the Osage to the literacy crowd that existed across the country, or the you know the people who follow literature and read a lot. And it became a bit of a you know an awakening for Osages to see that much attention being focused on our uh, very painful chapter in our history. And many of us uh, had helped him. Uh, in writing that by subjecting themselves to interviews and whatnot that he did and helped him with his research. And, uh, and so uh, by the time maybe a year or two after the book came out, it was announced that Martin Scorsese was going to direct it and he was bringing DiCaprio and De Niro into the project. And there was this huge buzz in the industry, you know, about who else is going to get cast. The story just started getting huge volumes amount of interest in the community. And a lot of us in Osage country, like myself, who's not only a former chief of the tribe, but I'm also a descendant of one of the people who are murdered in this book and presumably in the film. And uh, and it turned out I, that that also happened. His name was Henry Rome. 
My name is James Rohn. I'm named after him. And he was an unfortunate victim of the kind of things that they were doing to Osages back then. And um, so I had two reasons to be concerned. One was the direct descendant, but two, having been a leader of the tribe, I will, even if I'm not the current elected leader of the tribe, I still care about what happens to the tribe. I always will, you know. And so I had a little bit of of, of a platform, I guess, to uh, express myself or my concerns. And I wrote an op-ed in uh, a native publication called Indian Country Today about my concerns about, you know, whether or not the tribe should be effectively engaged. Why are other people telling our story? Hollywood doesn't have a good track record of being very kind to the Native American point of view in Hollywood, citing plenty of examples of that. Why is there always a white savior? Why can't Indians be in control of their own story? You know, that kind of thing. And that was legit. I mean, it was uh, picked up by other tribes. They shared my concern. Um, and then we heard this, the price tag of this film was going to be somewhere near $200 million. And, uh, and, there was a friend of mine who's a, a lawyer who's a, a tribal member as well. His name's Wilson Pipestem, and uh, he contacted me and he says, "Hey, have you been contacted by the filmmakers at all as a descendant, or you know, because all these murders occurred in this one area of the Osage Nation called Gray Horse, and uh, a lot of us over here are like, how come no one's talking to us about this film?" And I said, "No, I haven't been contacted by anybody," and. Uh, so he called a community meeting, and I showed up, and um, as a descendant of Henry Roan, I don't live in the Gray Horse community. I'm not part of it. I'm the Husky community because that's where my dad's family is. My mom's, well, you can get into that later. But anyway, I show up, and um, and everyone is rightfully concerned, and they didn't know what to do about it. So Wilson offered to write a letter on their behalf to Martin Scorsese. And we all agreed that we should at least reach out to him. And it was a well-written letter. It was very respectful. We're kind of concerned about the kind of film you're going to make. We haven't really been consulted. Uh, we're the descendants of the people who were murdered in this film. It happened in our community. We know a lot of people have questions about your intentions and this sort of thing. And we'd like to invite you to come to our community and break bread with us and sit down and let's talk about it, you know. And somehow that letter got to him and uh, he responded. He contacted Wilson. He said, I do want to meet with you, you know. And by that time, he had already did a well-publicized photograph sitting down in the chief standing bear's office, who's the current chief now. And that picture went all over the world. I mean, it was just like, oh, wow, this is really building up, you know. But the people in Gray Horse didn't really feel like they had been contacted, and they hadn't been. And so this was a very important meeting. It happened just a few months after that photograph of Scorsese and Standing Bear had been published. And, um, and he showed up, and he didn't show up by himself. He showed up with his whole entourage of about 15 individuals who all worked on his previous films going back decades. And, you know, if you know anything about his reputation, he's got all these um, uh, people that are, you know, like set designers, costume designers, cinematographers, producers, executive producers, you know, uh, you know, all these technical people that have worked with Scorsese and they have this, you know, they, they got Academy Awards among themselves, you know, and they all showed up at this community building on a reservation and they, they went through and they shook everybody's hand. And uh, we all had a, a really nice moment to meet everybody there. And there was about 150 Osages that were from the Gray Horse community uh, all assembled. They cooked a traditional Osage meal. After the meal, Wilson got up, took the mic and Reminded everybody why we're here. Thanks, Scorsese and his people for coming in. And then said we'd like to have some folks from the community come up and say a few words and give you at least our concerns that maybe you can take into account as you make this film. Well, by the time he had agreed to make this movie, the script had already been written. Eric Roth, the guy who wrote Forrest Gump, had, was hired to be the screenwriter, and he had already written the script. 
So we were concerned. Do you want a question? Do you, I, I, I look at you. I, well, I, I do have a question because, uh, and this, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think maybe uh, it might, it's relevant here. I'm, I'm curious how the book was received before the movie. Like, what did people in the Osage community feel, you know, think about the book and, and did that feed into any concerns about the movie? Because my understanding, I haven't read the book, but my understanding is the book is, more about the, the creation of the FBI than than about it's, the actual story of the Osage. So I'm I'm wondering how that was that was it's, received. It's kind of broken up into three pieces. One piece is the FBI. The other piece are the people who planted and implemented this scheme to murder Osages, those individuals. And the last part was the Osages. And so it it's he's kind of broken up into three different chapters basically, uh generally speaking. And um my guess uh, among the Osages is that we all know this story, right? I mean, we're, we're familiar with it. And the FBI files, and, and if there's one criticism Osages had, is that the FBI came in, they investigated, they filed charges against these guys, they prosecuted them, which is a, actually should be a movie in itself. The, 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 the way justice was meted out for Indian people in the 1920s is not what you think it is. It was horrible. I mean, basic questions of whether or not the federal government even had jurisdiction had to be fought, um, let alone be able to charge him. States were, especially Oklahoma, it was still in its infancy, and they hadn't established all its institution building that normally would take place when a new state is entered into the union. So there was that. And then there was the influence of corrupt politicians and people with money like William Hale. It was hard to see local government being of any source of help to the tribe. So the tribe was left without any real legitimate options. So all of that was well aware. We were all well aware of this to the point where, yeah, FBI, you did you did these one set of crimes. But when you got your headline, you left. And so there's literally, like you said at the beginning, we don't know how many other Osages were legitimately murdered in such a similar way for those purposes. All we know is that the mortality rate of Osages with a head right in those 20, first 20 years of statehood was probably somewhere between 50 and 60% where the mortality rate of everyone else living in Osage County, according to the census data, was about 10%. So are we just more accident-prone than anyone else? Shooting ourselves, throwing ourselves down the flight of steps, or hanging ourselves and running our cars off bridges? And, I, you know, because nobody ever investigated them, they're not part of the official record. So this much Osage is new, you know, when the book came out. And to David Grant's credit, he does in the last chapter allude to the fact that there are a lot of unsolved crimes that were never investigated. And that is just a matter of, it's not just a, a, a reservation myth or as, a, as opposed to an urban myth. It is <clears throat> ingrained in the Osage DNA as a, as a fact. And, yeah, and pretty much if you look at it, it's very obvious. You know, this yeah, isn't- it is. This isn't I, like a, a, a subtle thing. There's hundreds. I can't believe I have to continue to argue this, yeah. that, that the yeah. only only crimes that were ever committed in Osage were only the ones the FBI investigated. That's just, it's just not true, you know? And there's a lot of evidence, as you said, to support that. So when the book came out, it reinforced a lot of those feelings that people already had. And, uh, and so the book was well-received. And long, long story short, it was well received. I think there were other books out there written by Osage authors that did not get the kind of attention that David Grants did. For example, A Pipe for February by Charles Redcorn, uh, the late Charles Redcorn. And uh, his stories were collected by people whose crimes weren't investigated. And he passed away in the about eight, seven, eight years ago. And he wrote this book in the early 2000s, and it was taken from oral interviews he did with Osages back in the 40s and 50s and 60s when they were still around. And he collected all these stories, and he 
put a narrative together and wrote a, a, a fictional book using the real events, but changing all the names of the Osage families out of respect. And that book really does capture a lot more of the Osage cultural aspects because it was told from an Osage point of view. Other than that, there wasn't anybody really critical of David Grant and his effort. I, I think it was more like, I'm not anti-David Grant. I'm just pro Charles Redcorn kind of, you know, and we think, and what we say, at least certainly I do, read David Grant's book. And when you're done, read Charles Redcorn's book, because the two of them taken together tell you a more vivid story, you know? And um, so back to the movie thing, we had the dinner. He showed up, he met with everybody and sat down and we ate. And after that, Wilson takes the mic and starts bringing Osage elders up to talk. And a lot of them spoke about their families whose crime was not investigated. There were others who came up and said, you know, I really am worried that the film doesn't really capture, in my opinion, this one lady said, that the role of Osage women is not of a victim. They are the glue of the family and they are the strength of the family. And I think it would be a mistake to make Molly just a damsel in distress that's just being manipulated. She has her own identity. She has her own culture to back her up. She lives and immerses in it and she's traditional. So she's not she didn't like some Osages, they they kind of went all flapper in the 20s because they had the they had the money and they had the resources to live the life of a flapper. And uh, she wasn't one of those people. She was more stay at home, take care of your mom kind of thing and make the observances of the cultural ways of the tribe still a vivid part of her her life. And um, and so that 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 part of it was something that they communicated to Scorsese. I I made a mention normally about the industry itself that the the biggest blockbuster movies in Hollywood of Indian content, Dances with Wolves, Last of the Mohicans, uh, Little Big Man are all by your the terms of your industry were successful. But they all seem to have something in common. One is is that they were works of fiction that were written by a non-Indian writer, and they all required some kind of white savior as the lead, white actor as a lead. And, you know, you got Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans, you have Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves, and you got Dustin Hoffman, Little Big Man. And all I'm saying is, is that you don't have to make that film here because this is not a work of fiction. Yes, David Grant is non-Indian, but he wrote the history accurately. But he did not write the Osage perspective of the language, the culture, the customs, the way we interacted with each other, our clans, our cosmology, all the things that make us who we are as people and how we interact with people, how we deal with others, we how we deal with each other. All of these things are not in the files of the FBI, nor are they in the book, but they are in this room. And I said it out loud right then and there. Nobody in this room wants you to fail. We want you to get it right. And all I'm saying is that you don't have to make that movie. That's Those movies have already been made. Make a movie that hasn't been made before by your industry. Be the director to make that film. The one that everyone's going to look at and say, that's the one we got right. But we can only, you know, plead with you to do that. Um, if you let us, we'll help you in every way we can. But we can't go unless we're invited, right? So um, that's how, you know, and the whole room just erupted, you know, and applause and hooping and Lulu and, you know, all the, the language of our people was just in approval of that, that, that message. And his eyes got big and he leaned into his team that was sitting around the table and they all whispered to one another and he jumped out of his chair. He walked over and shook my hand, thanked me. And I went to my seat and eventually he, after everyone was done, he took the mic and he said, I heard you all. I'm listening. And we were scheduled to go into production. This happened in November of 2019. So he said they were going to go into production in March of 2020. And I'm going to put that off because I think I can redo this script in such a way where 
I can incorporate a lot of what I'm hearing tonight. And I'm not going to start production until I get that script right. And that was his promise he made to us right then and there that evening. And uh, I left feeling somewhat satisfied that at least I tried. I don't know how successful. I didn't know what he heard. What I mean, I know what we said, but I don't know what he heard, right? But I was um, satisfied that Wilson did the right thing by holding that dinner. And uh, the community showed up. They supported uh, what was being said. And... Um, Everyone felt good. I, even Scorsese hung around and took selfies with everybody until they left. And uh, he was incredibly charming. He really was. And uh, everyone just fell in love with him. And, uh, you know, and let's not forget the fact that he's in our community building. I'm talking to him. He's eight feet away from me. And I got a mic talking in front of 150 of my own tribal members. And how do you tell a guy like Scorsese how to do his business? I mean, really? You you really think that much of yourself that you could tell him something he don't know, you know, and I, you know, you had to overcome that because because there's a starstruck aspect of this that a lot of us fell victim to. I mean, some of us got up and said, "I really liked what you did in Casino." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, how would you guys act if you were in a situation like that? Would you be any different? Uh, I mean, you, this guy's a legend, you know, and everyone's seen his movies, and so we had to kind of overcome that i myself included i i i was just uh, as much of a, a a fan as anybody else was in that room and and but, i think that's why i think that's the moment he he has co-screenwriting credit on this which is not something that scorsese always always has well and you know I, i'm the only one who says this but i i'm just looking at the timeline you know i i suspected he was going to because he did a, a a podcast interview in January right after that meeting, and he referenced the meeting in Gray Horse, how it affected him and what he was thinking of doing. And he was thinking about postponing it for a couple of months to May of 2020. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, he's going to have, what, eight or nine weeks with this thing to rewrite. I, You know, I'm just thinking he's going to work. We're only going to get the margins of this thing, you know. So I was trying to, my own self, trying to manage expectations. And then COVID hit and shut the entire industry down for basically the rest of the year. And as bad as and horrible as that pandemic was to the entire world and the lives and the economy and everything, it actually helped us. It gave Scorsese more time because he didn't have anything else going on. So he spent all his time rewriting that script, working with Leo. Leo was originally supposed to play the FBI agent that breaks the case and does the investigation and all that. So you could tell where this story was going. And uh, Eric Roth admitted as much in a podcast for screenwriters around that uh, the next year where he did this interview looking back at the changes that were made. And I, I, I don't know. I can't. I'm just kind of reading between the lines and how he responded to some of the questions about the changes. And you could tell he wasn't entirely happy about it, you know. He made some statement about, well, Leo got half of what he wanted and I got half of what I wanted, you know, but it's not going to be the the movie that Paramount was going to fund. And so that dropped a bomb that was picked up in the trades. Is Paramount having cold feet about this movie now that all these changes have been made? And, you know, there was some story that some writer wrote was like not quoting anybody specifically, but sources close to Paramount have indicated Scorsese, if you want to shop this around, we're not going to stop you kind of thing. And he shopped it to Apple and they said, yeah, let's do it. And Paramount was like, hey, we're still getting a theatrical release, right? Right. Correct. You know, it's like so all of a sudden everyone found the way forward, you know, changes included, changes in the financing, the new script, all that, the tribes on board. You know, to give credit to Chief Standing Bear, you know, the people of Gray Horse could help him in some ways, but the chief of the tribe in the authority that he has, he opened up all the program and departments that the tribe had built up that preserves our culture, that preserves our language, that has a written language, that has the real estate department that shows all our tribal land holdings that could be used to shoot scenes. 
We had cooperative agreements with the local governments to uh, redesign Pahuska to 1920s Fairfax, Oklahoma, and shoot it all on the reservation and on location. He made it possible for all these Osages to get work as consultants in all aspects of the film. And uh, he gets a he gets a not a lot of credit for being very very supportive of the project. And I would say that the the two things combined made for a very collaborative relationship with the filmmakers, the descendants of the families affected, the tribal government itself, and all its programs and departments working with a film company that wants to incorporate a lot of what the tribe has into this film. It, it couldn't have worked any, it could not have worked if all these elements weren't proactively engaging with each other. I think and, this, uh, yeah. sorry, I think this might be a natural place to talk about the film, yeah. the film itself. So having been involved somewhat in, in sort of the pre-production, what did you think of what wound up on screen, particularly from an Osage perspective? Um, well, once yeah. he recast Leonardo from the FBI agent to this guy who marries into the, the family, Ernest Burkhart, I knew from that news alone that the, they were going to have to incorporate a lot more Osage elements into it. Because what's the point of marrying into the tribe if you don't know who this tribe is? So because if they stayed with the FBI version, the Osages would have been extras in their own story. They would have been background characters in their own story. And that's the, that change dealt the Osages back in almost, I wouldn't say all the way, but almost as an equal visual partner in the making of this film. Yeah, it still is from a white man's perspective in the final I, analysis. That there um, be no doubt that, that Leo's in 80% of the scenes. And Molly's in, I mean, Lily Gladstone's in like half of that, you know. But they had to show what they were doing behind Molly's back. And that consumed a big chunk of the film in the middle. And so um, anyway, back to the question was that. Uh, so everyone was excited. They started having auditions. People were showing up and huge numbers. Osages and other indigenous tribes in Oklahoma were all there participating in for opportunities both in front of the camera and behind the camera. And some key uh, cast members were already selected. Um, they made a big deal about announcing that Lily had landed the role of Molly. Also, the other uh, characters that were support characters like Kara Jade Myers, and William Ballou, and all these other folks that played some of the victims of the, the crimes that were committed in the movie. And and there was a lot of excitement and buzz in the o Indian Osage community and the Indian community in general because there were opportunities for other tribes to be seen and 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 they were brought in as extras and others. And there was opportunities behind the camera. My cousin, for example, who's a Chicago-trained chef, came back to move to support his, his mom here in Pahuska, Oklahoma, on the reservation. And... Um, Started a little catering company to, you know, make make ends meet. Turns out that was the biggest movie ever made because as soon as Scorsese got settled in here, he inked a contract to provide food for all the extras and the actors and the, the staff for a year. And um, so they practiced what they preached. They They didn't just, you know, come in with their folks and then just leave. They came in and brought a lot of the, all of their resources to pull the tribe in and all kinds of ways, both as a tribe and as individuals. And uh, I was on the sidelines just watching it all play out. And it was something to see, you know, seeing, you know, of course, everyone had signed NDA, so they couldn't talk publicly much about what they were asked to do. And uh, but eventually stories started leaking out of, you know, you could tell the sets were being shot, you know, and people were showing up, you know, just trying to get a view of one of the actors, you know, and there was uh, local news stations in Tulsa and Oklahoma City would come up and, uh, and you know, do news segments about the filming that was going on. And there was just a lot of excitement. And um, the COVID protocols were still in place. So everyone still had to mask up and get your COVID test and have to prove you're negative before you can go on set. And there was, 
you know, Scorsese was extra careful because he's an elder. He's a, got, you know, high morbidity, you know, kind of conditions. So everyone was had him in a bubble, you know, from what I'm told. He was in a protective climate-controlled bubble in 110-degree weather, you know, had a camera in front of him, and he was being able to speak to the director on the set and tell him to reshoot it or whatever, change this. And so he... He was actively engaged on the set, you know, even with, because this is, we're talking 2021. So all these things were happening while we were still dealing with the COVID. Then the vaccines and everything was still, uh, protocols were still required for shooting. So they, they pushed through that period of time and got the film shot. They came back a year later to do one last scene, which was this last scene in the movie and of the dancing that went on and um i'm sorry i'm spoiling it for everybody here aren't i but i'm sorry go see the movie that's all i could say <laughs> so there's been a lot of that uh, it just made a it, it it made the osages feel like they had some ownership there was some real connections from the osage consultants that really gave a lot of us confidence that there was going to be accuracy in the use of our language, our ceremonies, our observances that are captured in the film are done with respect and accuracy as well. And um, just a lot of little things that a lot of people won't get, you know, um, but they are essential to the Osage perspective and, and the Osage way of life as it was in the 1920s. Jim, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the Osage themselves and sort of the Osage culture. You you get these glimpses into it in the movie in sort of very interesting kind of tantalizing ways, but but the perspective is still on DiCaprio and Ernest Burkhardt and the scheme, kind of the, the, the white people, the white folks scheme to uh, defraud these people. So I'm sort of, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the Osage themselves. And, and in particular, one of the things I found most interesting was these little indications of the Osage cosmology and, and religion and the interaction between traditional cosmology and Christianity in this time and place. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, how that played out? Well, I think one of the things you'll see in this film, and you've seen it in the trailers, there's a scene where this individual is holding a pipe in this a ceremonial role, that image was actually depicted in Charles Redcorn's book, A Pike of February. I, re I referenced it earlier. And Scorsese acquired the rights to that book so that he could use that scene to open the movie. What that scene is supposed to represent, if you read the book, is that the elders in the late 1890s started to realize that we lost so much of our ways through all the things I mentioned early, um, that it's going to be really impossible for us to move forward with just bits and pieces of our culture intact. So we're going to have to learn to adapt to a new world. This Western expansion is coming to our community and our children are going to have to learn to adapt. It's too late for us, but it's not too late for them to survive as Osages. And we have to prepare them. But in order for us to learn to adapt to a new world, we have to put some elements of our old world away. So literally, they buried that pipe and whatever it and what it represented to our people as a as an individual, as a tribe, as a community, as a spiritual element of who we were as people. Some of those things, not all of it, but some of those things had to be put away. A because the elders who understood its secrets are gone and they're not there to pass it down to a younger generation. So all we have is the elements without the context. This happened across all of Indian country in some way or another. During that period of transition, the Indian wars are over. The boarding schools were starting to kick in. The allotment was kicking in. The breaking up of tribal governments was kicking in. Our Everything about our life was about ready to come to an end. Wounded knee was going on at that time where they wiped out an entire uh, Sioux community uh, because they were trying to hold on to their religious ways. 
and Christianity was descending into the communities in a way that really um, was an unusual marriage between religion and state because the state funded these churches to start schools to re-educate children. And part of the re-education camps of these schools experience was that they could they were forbidden from speaking their language or practicing any other traditional ways. They cut their hair, they burned their clothes, and they taught them how to be servants, how to do menial labor, and um, basically robbed them of an Osage upbringing and kept them there for years and years. And when they were released back to their communities, a lot of them were lost. They didn't really fit into the white world because they were Indian. And they didn't really fit in the Indian world because they weren't raised Indian. And a lot of these people, that generation was destroyed by these policies. And so I would say that, you know, it would have been nice if the Osages had written that book or financed that movie and produced the story because I'm sure it would include things like that as part of the way to explain to outsiders what we were going through at that time these are the federal policies that were put upon us and we had to struggle even with all that money in the eyes of the law our lives were cheap and we weren't given the 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 respect as another citizen just simply because we were indian and the society combined with federal policies just reinforced that and then when you add all that money that was coming to the tribe to it it, it makes a lot more sense why so little was done to protect the lives of Osages at that time. The tribal council literally had to pass the hat and give the federal government $20,000 just to get the FBI down here to do this investigation. When have you ever heard any citizen in the United States having to pay the FBI to do an investigation? I mean, or any federal agency to do their job. But in those days... These were the choices that the Osages had. So they did it. Now, $20,000 may not seem much to us now, but in the 1920s, $20,000 was three or $400,000. And that's the value of what the money that we had that we were willing to invest to, to bring some measure of justice to our people who were just getting slaughtered. Some by paper, some by a knife, some by alcohol poisoning, some by a gun. You know, I mean, but it was all happening. And uh, so, yeah, I think that the Osages um, could have told a different, would have told a different story if it was their story. But the Osages didn't go looking for this book to be written. The Osages didn't go look for this movie to be made. This just came on us, you know, and realizing that this was going to be made, whether we were involved in it or not, we chose to proactively do everything we could to help steer the story in a way, in the best way we could to the degree that they would let us. So I think as we, as I'm sorry, <laughs> no, no, that's great. I mean, as, as we come to the end, I think it might make sense to talk a little bit about the Osage today and, and how does the tribe exist today? And, what are its current relationships with the federal government that has done it horribly dirty historically? And now there's a new light on one of the most horrific stories of the 20th century. Uh, just pure, disgusting, racist atrocities. So uh, how how does the Osage exist today and how does it relate to the federal government? Well, in the 1960s, they finally brought a close to the Indian boarding school policy. And those schools um, were, the let's just say, enough documented evidence shown that there was abuse, there was graft, there was sexual exploitation in these schools. These children were raped in these schools. They were miserable. And it destroyed their self-worth. A lot of them were never the same when they returned home. Some committed suicide in these schools. And so the 1960s was kind of a transition of federal policy. Uh, the great society programs were coming in. There was some attention being paid to indigenous communities during that period of time by federal 
policy changes. Maybe, you know, leading up to the 1970s, there was a law that was passed caused, called the um, um, Self-Determination Act and Education Assistance Act. And so the paternal policies of the day where the white man told the Indians how to live, who they can be, what they can and can't do, just started to, that was a radical shift in federal policy. Um, Those gave the tribe the ability to take over some of the BIA functions that served their communities, social services, education, that sort of thing. The tribe could actually enter into an agreement and really take over the budget and the money that comes with that. And redesign the programs in such a way where it, it was more, you know, we, we were, because the government's closer to the ground, it usually governs better kind of mentality and not some bureaucrat DC know what's best on the reservation in the Osage nation. I think the Osages have a pretty good idea what they need to do, you know? So these agreements allowed the tribe to play a more active role. Our situation specifically kept that old tribal council in place because the 1906 act, while it did this thing of awarding all 2,229 original allottees on that census roll, a head right share, what it also did, which didn't seem to be a problem at the time, but it became a bigger problem by the time I became chief, was that the United States, after they issued all those uh, head right shares, they closed the roll. No more Osages in the eyes of the law, except those 2,229. And as long as there was one original Latis still alive, there was still a trust relationship between the United States and the Osages. Even though their descendants have somehow inherited a fraction of their head right and they recognized it, the disparity between the Osages without head rights and the Osages with head rights was becoming almost three-fourths to one-fourth of the population of the tribe. So there was as many as 24,000, 25,000 Osages out there, but only 4,000 had any political rights within the tribe to vote, run for office, sit on a tribal council, and this sort of thing. And even those basic elements were even made worse because the federal government imposed that tribal council structure and gave them no real lawmaking powers, just a power to pass resolutions, which didn't have the weight of law unless the BIA agreed with it. And if they didn't agree with it, it was just, not worth the paper it was written on. That was the government that I inherited when I ran for chief in 2002. So we went about changing those two things through federal legislation. One was to give the Osages the right to redesign their own government without any more help from you all. You know, we did it your way and look where it got us kind of thing. And let us try to fix it for ourselves because we think we could do a better job because we know what our needs are. And secondly, We're not going to define an Osage by law simply by whether or not they have an interest in the mineral estate. That disparity has created a class system of Osages with head rights and Osages without head rights. And without Osage, without head rights, you have no voice in your own tribe. And these people far outnumbered the people who did. And so by getting the federal government out of deciding who is an Osage by law and turning it back over to the tribe, were the two key elements of the federal legislation that President Bush signed into law in 2004. Since that time, we went and did a established a a government reform commission who went out in the community, took testimony from Osages with head rights and those without, about what kind of government you wanted, what does it need to look like, what kind of things are important to you, what are the institutions of our government, you know, what are the elements of it, you want checks and balances, you know, do you want the old system? If that's the case, we have the right to do that, too. And so what they did was that they said, we want to uh, resurrect the 1881 Constitution. We want to modernize it and bring it up to current status, add things that the 1881 Constitution didn't anticipate, and bring this government to its current status. And in 2006, we voted on that three-part government, checks and balances, Transparency in our government and our finances, responsibilities like a free press was acknowledged. Some really staggering, unique features in our Constitution like uh, prioritizing uh, the protection of our language and our culture was ingrained in our governing documents. So every elected official who ever served has a responsibility to protect and preserve 
the Constitution, and in that Constitution are the priorities of the Osage Nation of getting our land back, getting our language back, preserving our culture, saving it for future generations, that sort of thing. And it exploded with enormous outpouring of community support to speak their language again, because those things have been left out of the tribal government. And it was relegated to just families for years. And uh, so we married those elements of our tribal's cultural into our governing documents. And we not only preserved our ceremonial dances this way, we also had the justification to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions in some cases of rebuilding our traditional ceremonial houses with state-of-the-art facilities that can accommodate, you know, five times more of a population who had been left out. So the reform was a renaissance of an explosion of Osage culture and activities. We opened seven casinos during that period of time. We poured all of that money into health and education and cultural preservation and language preservation. And because of that, there are literally thousands of Osages speaking the language that didn't even have it before. There are tens of thousands of Osages over the last 20 years that have got a college degree that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And with no, or they had it, but they don't have any debt, you know. It was such a life-changing event in that for our people that when you, when people look at the 1920s and saw how powerless we were to stop the exploitation that was going on, it's really a contrast to see us today. You know, we got 2,000 employees. We got a $75 million payroll. We are a huge corporate citizen. We are by far the largest employer in Northeast Oklahoma in our part of the area of our reservation by a long shot. And we pour a lot of money into churches and schools, roads, bridges. We we saved uh, our language in many ways, I think, because of that. So by the time Scorsese showed up and said, you know, okay, we heard you. Help us with this language. Help teach this language to our actors so that they can speak these lines. We had a whole department ready to do it that had been there for 17 years, ready to pounce. And they taught course, they taught Robert De Niro how to speak Osage better than Osages. It's crazy. It's how, when you watch the film, you're going to be blown away on how easy, easily he accepted this. And th that didn't just come naturally. He worked at it. He trained at it. He constantly was practicing his lines and understanding the nuances of the, the cadence of an Osage voice. He wasn't just reading words that he didn't understand. He under, he took time to understand the words, understand the meaning, so that when he did repeat the lines, he did it with the effective elocution and inflection to show anger, love, empathy, all of that. It just popped on the screen. Now, to an average moviegoer, he could have been speaking Japanese for all they know. But to an Osage in the audience, it was amazing to see something like that so professionally done by one of the most well-known actors of our time and one of the big, biggest budget, probably the biggest budgeted movie with native content ever made in the history of Hollywood that is being seen all over the world. And to think that they spent that kind of time to invest in that kind of thing to make that language so alive in this movie was incredible it really really was you know and i know there's been some people griping about well they could have done this they could have done that i said yeah i know you know but look what they did do you know that hadn't been done before i didn't realize how prophetic my words were that day in 2019 i said make the movie that this industry hadn't made yet he did it could it be better of course it could would it be the movie that the Osages would have made? Probably not. But our involvement in this film, I believe to my core, made this a better film. I really do believe it. Jim, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you again. Um, we hope to have you back again to talk more about the Osage. Really appreciate yeah. it. Glad to be here and 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 I hope you get to feeling better. I, I, I hate COVID. It's just it's brutal. I 
I know. Just seeing you is just like, oh my god, he's in pain. I was like, I can tell. Don't he'll live, really? Let's. <laughs> wow, Dad, so sympathetic. The sympathy only goes so far. Dad, I, can tell. <laughs> Matt, I don't let Derek take any time off. But uh, Jim, thanks again, and um, we'll see you all soon. Bye.